Welcome to Get A Move On, the podcast for movement lovers who are fed up with their injuries and want to enhance their all-round health. On this podcast, I'll help you change how you think about pain and illness so you can drop the frustration and move freely. I'm Amy, an osteopath turned yoga teacher and mindset coach. On this pod, I'll be talking about the joys of pain, injury and illness, the mind-body connection and how they relate to our movement practice so you can get a move on. Hey everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Get A Move On with Amy Slevin. As always, I'm Jamie and I'm helping to co-host the podcast. Ames, how are you? I'm alright, thanks Jamie. How are you? I'm very good. I'm sort of in the glow of England's win against Germany yesterday. Oh, commiserations. <laughs> no, no, the glow's a good thing. It has been a while, hey? God, it's been... 75 years? Yeah, I think the last time we beat them in a proper game was 1966, eh? Oh my God, they won't bloody shut up about 1966. 30th of July, 1966, last time we did it. But you know, it's interesting because one of the things the football being on does is produce a fair amount of anxiety in lots of people. And even, dare I say it, a little bit of fear. And fear is the topic of today. Aims to kick things off, how do you define fear? Fear is a perception that you're going to gain something that you don't want or lose something that you already have and that you're very attached to and infatuated with. Are there any fears that you have that you sort of want to share with the group? (laughs) My name's Amy and I've got (laughs) daddy issues. (laughs) What are my fears? You know, I kind of have this fear of being like a paraplegic. It's a fear that makes a lot of sense given what you do and how much you are attached to movements. I'm very infatuated and attached to movement, yeah. Yeah, so that fits in with your definition of fear really well. The fear of losing your movement aside, is there anything that's come up recently? Sure. I'm back on the flying trapeze after two years. I started doing flying trapeze about five, six years ago because I was very afraid of heights and I wanted to overcome my fear of heights. I would occasionally drive past the rig in Regent's Park with Gorilla Circus and see it there and think, whoa, I thought it was actually like just not for me. I thought it was inaccessible to like mortals like me. And then one day I was like, you know what, maybe I'll have a go and that will help me overcome my fear of heights and that will help me with my parkour. So I booked a lesson, I went along, shut myself from start to finish. It was so terrifying, but it was like, kind of exhilarating and thrilling in its terror and then I kind of just couldn't stop and every time I go I'm there and I'm like on the platform holding onto the bar and I'm like saying to myself I say to the instructors like why am I here why am I doing this (laughs) and I'm shitting myself and then I do it and I'm like fuck I'm okay actually I'm kind of okay there's something to pick you up on that, which is you've had a fear and then you sort of were exposed to the fear in the way that made it go away, at least a little bit over time. How do you feel about exposure therapy as a method of addressing fear? I think it's pretty fantastic. And I think what I didn't do was exposure therapy. I threw myself in at the deep end there because it wasn't like I was just going to go there and stand and do nothing. I was like, I'm jumping off. <laughs> yeah, this also fits into your definition of fear quite neatly, because all of a sudden, if you're exposed to something, you see that actually there isn't so much to fear in all likelihood. So trapeze, for example, you go down and it's safe, basically. There are nets, there are instructors, people are trained. And the point about the fear is it's often irrational or based off an event that's happened in the past, which is making you overcautious. 
And you would probably say that leaves the realms of rationality. And then when you're doing it, you're forced to meet the objectivity of the situation, which is, okay, I fell and I fell onto the net and the net was quite soft and the instructor helps me up. Is that effectively the basis for I'll dive in and I'll be okay therapy? Kind of. I mean, usually we do something called graded exposure, which is where you do like little snippets of the thing that you're afraid of. The typical example is with spiders. So you'll sort of see a picture of a spider and then you kind of freak out like, but you know that you're like, okay, because it's just a picture of a spider. I can't remember exactly the stages that like, you know, there's like a small spider in a box and then like a bigger spider in a box or in a jar, whatever. And then the stages get kind of more and more like so-called risky. So then there's like a spider not in a box or a jar. And then we get to like a spider on your hand. So you kind of go in stages so that you feel safe at each stage. And my perception of fear is that basically what goes on is you have an initial experience of something being bad, or you perceive something bad happening to someone else, and you draw conclusions, which is that thing is to be avoided. Is that how you see it too? Yeah, very much so. And I think, you know what though, like spiders, for example, like unless you're living in like the jungle or Australia, if you're living in Northwest London, the potential risk and hazard of spiders is pretty negligible and so this fear that we have when we freak out when we see a spider it's just a bit ridiculous really is it not just the product of evolution in as far as you know we are very good at being afraid of snakes that are the wrong color and no one's ever gone really this color is dangerous this color is not dangerous it's just we've got an in-the-built fear and the ancestors that didn't have that fear kind of died and that's evolutionary <laughs> psychology possibly but i think actually english spiders are not that dangerous at all and i think it's very much down to conditioning rather than we need this fear in order to help us survive yes definitely in tropical places or where the spiders are really dangerous then yeah to be afraid of a spider is probably necessary for survival we're trained by parents to be afraid but actually i have to say my mom did a really good job because like she didn't instill a fear in these things with me so then one day <laughs> recently in recent times I was at my mom's house and she was freaking out because a bat in the summer had flown in through her lounge window and was like circling around the living room in the air. And she was like, oh my God, no, oh my God, there's a bat in the living room. I was like, oh my God, a bat, that's so cool. And so she's like, get it out, Emmy, get it out. And I was like, I can't believe I'm hearing this reaction from the person who trained me not to be afraid of stuff. Yeah, and you actually are amazing, right? Because if ever there's a bee that needs saving, but is looking a little bit stingy or a little bit angry, <laughs> You're like, dude, come here, sweep it up, bit of a coffee and a chat. <laughs> Understand its fears, its hopes, its dreams, and on its way. There is a point about conditioning here, without question. I just wonder how helpful it is then for parents to be overcautious with their kids. Because what you're effectively doing is, as they're growing up into the world with fresh eyes, you're making these category choices for them of bad, not bad, dangerous, not dangerous. Exactly. And we have a pretty good inbuilt system for that, which is, you fuck it, okay, I won't put my hand on the iron again. And we seem to have gotten okay with that fairly natural level of feedback. I mean, look, on one level, it's natural that you don't want your kids to be in pain or anything else. But it's kind of coming one way or the other. So I think maybe just let them crack on. A friend of mine, a guy called Sammy, who hosts and organizes the Family Podcast, which I think is a really, I love that podcast. He has a like a two or three-year-old daughter. And he, I remember him saying recently that his young daughter was 
pottering around and there was a potential hazard in the house that she might uh, bang her head or fall or something. And his friend was like, are you not going to stop her? Like, she's going to fall. And he was like, no, she's going to figure it out for herself and she'll be fine. If she hurts herself, she'll know that that's a thing that she probably shouldn't do again. And I'll comfort her if that happens. Maybe what you're doing there is weighing up the risks as well, because you can fall down the stairs and die, which is bad, but there's a low probability versus the more guarantee of, well, if she never falls down the stairs, she'll be kind of clueless growing up and won't be able to assess danger. There's a risk with both, and you're basically just rolling the dice that the terrible disaster, which will make you think, Mm. shit, probably should have intervened there. You're basically just gambling that that one won't happen. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, look, we've all fallen down the stairs, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, and most of us live to tell the tale. I remember getting my head stuck in a banister and you having <gasps> Oh my God, I was there. You screamed the house down. I dealt with it with elegance and poise. <laughs> because it was just you and me and your mum and dad were like in their room, chilling, whatever. And I was like, shh, let's not make a big deal out of this because it was my fault. Because I think I'd encouraged you to put your head through or something. What went on is, <laughs> I kind of went, oh, I can look through here. And you were like, look on then. <laughs> and then I was in, and then I had a bit of a panic. And then I saw that you were like, oh shit, okay, this is the thing that's happened, which then panicked me. <laughs> I remember being fucking painful too, you know, the reversal situation. Yes. I remember you folding my ears back, being like, <laughs> oh, no. they still haven't recovered, eh? Shame. And the parent did come running. They both came running because they heard the screams. (laughs) Nikki was like, oh my God, Jamie, Morris, come. You know, and then Morris was like, okay, so hold on. Everyone just like calm down. Let's just assess the situation. And then he's like, okay, Jamie boy, this is what. And then like, you were free. The thing about being freed from a banister is you very quickly chill out afterwards because you're out now. Well, it's the same with flying trapeze. You know, the first time you do it, you shit yourself, you freak out. Some people want to puke. And then you're like, oh my God, I want to go again. I think it's probably the same with bungee jumping and jumping out of planes. For me, that's like beyond the pale. I have no intention ever of doing that. Well, this is the type of fear that makes them saying evolutionary sense. A fear of heights is a very good way to not go near tall things that don't have barriers to falling. And in some ways, it's a very human exercise to press against that slightly and see where the line is. And that is, in fairness, what the flying trapeze is in some ways. Yeah, very much so. You know, once you do overcome that fear, it's actually incredibly gratifying, depending on what the fear is, right? So with the height and the trapeze, it then becomes this really exciting, and for me, this is like my whole big thing. It's like a skill-based activity, which I just love. Oh my God, I remember also the first time I did it, don't tell dad, without the safety lines. You know, I'd stayed in them for much too long, basically. And then eventually the instructors were like, mm-hmm, it's time. Amy, come over here. And then like this dude just like took off my belt. And I was like, oh, no, don't make me do it without the safety lines. And then I did it and I was like, oh my God, that was magical. And that sounds like that moment when you're riding a bike. Mm. You've gone off stabilizers, but someone's holding the back of the bike. Yeah. And you turn around, they're not there anymore. And you're like, and then you fall over. <laughs> You know the cartoon where the guy would run off the cliff and he'd be fine until he realised he was... <laughs> and then that was him. Oh my gosh. So I did the flying trapeze today, right? And it was a fascinating observation in human behaviour because there was a group of about seven young girls and I think they were sort of like booked on as a fun day out kind of thing. They were about 15-ish and 
they were all completely terrified. They all collectively shut themselves and really struggled. You know, a few of them like just stood on the platform for ages, like, oh my God, I don't want to do it. Um, and really freaking out. It just made me think that's like almost like herd mentality. It did make me think of Corona. So normally if there's a group of friends, as this was, if one person freaks out and they are either kind of in the middle or the end of the line, then it doesn't really matter. But if like the first or second person freaks out, then that influences the fear of the whole group. I don't know that I'm with you there on the corona stuff, but that as a mechanic, <laughs> I understand. Because yeah. I was a school teacher for a school trip for five days. Oh, yeah. In Devon last year. And I obviously won't say what the school is, but it's a well-to-do school. The group were 12 and 13 year olds. And lots of them, it's worth probably noting, given it is quite a well-to-do school, aren't massively practical. You know, there's a lot that gets done for them, obviously. And it makes you wonder, these are the people that are going to be running the country in about 30 years' time. Well, as someone with the practical skills of probably half them, I'm not saying it's in a judgmental way. It's just that when that we went, we had to do this, to be fair to them, quite difficult, strenuous, setting up your own tent slash hammock in the pouring rain, and all your clothes are soaked, and they're going to be for the next two days, and there's no more food. You know, like, it was one of those nights. And as soon as the first person had their panic attack and was upset. It was literally like putting out fires because the longer that one went on for, you knew it was going to spark other ones. And there was this sort of like group herd thing of the status quo emotion here is the fear or upset, which made a lot of sense contextually. But Mm. had there been an equally calm couple of people being very publicly stoic, you probably would have seen that spread in quite the same way. Now you might argue Jamie, you were 23 and the teacher. The reason you're there specifically is to address this problem. So obviously Mm. I didn't do that brilliant. I took a phone call (laughs) from a dad at 3 a.m. Saying, with all the courage I could muster and confidence and legitimacy. Hi, Jamie Slevin, blah, 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 school. And got, Jamie, why is my daughter telling me that there is vomit in her tent and somebody is bleeding? And I thought, I know that's bullshit. I know it's bullshit because I was in that tent five minutes ago. But I didn't have the confidence to tell him that. But equally, what happens if I was wrong? I mean, I was convinced kind of I would be wrong because why would that not be true? So I took that phone call and then slipped and slid up to the proper teachers, not the pretend between university year ones. And was like, we should probably organize this. And the solution that we found was they slept in my tent, the group of three, and I slept in their tent. And to be fair to them, there was no blood or vomit. But it was pretty grim. How very noble of you. What a martyr. Yeah, the next morning, this was probably unkind, actually. They felt a bit bad and a bit cheapish. And they were like, oh, thank you, Jamie. And I was like, don't worry, don't worry. Oh. No, I know. We lost the thread here. Well, let's Let's... go back to the herd mentality. What was interesting observing the girls today was towards the end, when they knew that it was the end of the lesson, morale had been like mega low. amongst the whole group when there were like only like 15 minutes left toward the end of the lesson and suddenly they were invited to like do you want to have another go before you leave forever and suddenly they all wanted to and they were like I want to go I want to go and it was like the possibility of never being able to do this again inspired them to overcome their fear a little bit Uh, Yeah, I wonder if scarcity could be a repeatable tool against fear. You will never get another chance to jump out of this plane. Well, now I kind of want to jump out of the plane, right? (laughs) Because that's how this works. Yeah. Scarcity is an interesting tool more generally, though, isn't it? I mean, it's Mm. used all the time. One of my flatmates at the moment helps kids write college essays, like I think personal statement UCAS. And he says in his application that four times, space is limited. 
Now spaces probably aren't limited, but it creates the scarcity of spaces being limited. And maybe that's the important thing. Well, that's how... FOMO, right? Yeah, so let's talk about FOMO. FOMO is something I basically don't get as much as I used to. The reason being, I think, is, you know, because I went to university and it was all very social. It means you just do enough of the thing and then you go to a house party and it could be really fun. But the majority of time, it's like sort of between good and really good. You know, it's fine. Like, it's fun. But it's having enough experiences about something, a little bit like with the trapeze, that prove or disprove an idea that you didn't previously think. So in this case, it disproves the idea that the house parties are always really, really, really fun. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, you just lack the fear of missing them. Yes. And also because I guess by then your perceptions of the thing have balanced a bit more and so instead of infatuating with them and thinking oh my god they're amazing they're cool but they also have these drawbacks and when you become more conscious of the drawbacks then that's when the fear of missing out goes down yeah exactly because you just spent half of it asking someone what type of management consultancy they do you think christ i could do without this not that i've got anything against the management consultancy i've just you can have that conversation i reckon once yeah exactly and that lends itself once more to the exposure arguments how so well, one of the reasons why exposure helps uh, get over fears, I'm imagining, is because your perception of that event beforehand was it's all bad. And then you right. do it a few times and you realise, oh, it's also okay and it's actually not so dangerous. Yes, of course, that makes complete sense. I think, as a slightly edgy take, I think that's probably why midlife crises to some degree happen. Obviously, you have like the unfulfilled in my job thing, but I think you have mm. people who get married too young and have repression about drink, drug, sex, etc. So never play it out. Mm. And I never really get to balance that as a thing. Mm. So they never go and see, oh, it's fine, but I'm sort of over it. They never get to be yeah. over it because all it means really to be over it is I did it, I see the advantages and disadvantages and it's not for me anymore. Right, but it still remains a fantasy. It remains a fantasy and then that drives yeah. behavior because you're now at a stage of your life where to be honest, mm. those things aren't as online as they are maybe when you're 17, 25, whatever it is. You have this big contrast between the reality and the fantasy, which is why everyone just needs to play everything out. Yeah, I agree. And just like, you know, don't be afraid of judgment of other people, of losing something that you are particularly attached to. Because even when you do lose something, and I think this is kind of part of the overcoming fear thing, is that, you know, if we fear like losing something, whatever it is, if it's like losing the ability to run a marathon or losing the ability to jump over walls in parkour or losing a relationship or a friend or a husband or whatever. Nature doesn't like a vacuum. And so whatever you lose or whatever you perceive you lose, nature fills it with something else. Yeah, I was having a conversation with this lovely lad from Aberdeen, Michael Kostelitz, and he won a Nobel Prize a couple of years ago for some research on effectively between solids and liquids something interesting happens that was his Nobel Prize but anyway we were chatting and he basically was diagnosed with MS when he was sort of 28 and Uh at the time he was a pretty well-known climber and there are still roots in the Alps that have his name and all the rest of it and he felt for a while like this thing had been taken away from him and the climbing was really what it was about the academia kind of facilitated the life to do the climbing I'm imagining academia was different in the 60s. But the vacuum was filled. He lost it and therefore had to do something else. And they put him down a path of something that was ultimately probably more fulfilling in his view. Now, this is where it gets a little bit Disney and can sound a little bit sugary if you don't hear it right. But 
you know, when one door closes, another opens, is almost by definition true. Yeah, it just sounds like shite. Total, but actually it's spot on. I mean, so like with relationships, right? The obvious place to go is if you're in a relationship, you basically can't meet anyone else. Okay, so the classic one is when you're single, you tend to go out more. And I'd imagine one of the reasons for that is there's some subtle underlying motivation of, oh, I could meet someone cool. Yeah. Which isn't online when you're with someone. In relationships, a very obvious example is most people have monogamous relationships. And therefore, you know, you don't meet anyone else, but then you lose someone and it feels like a disaster. But the whole world opens up again in terms of possibilities, etc., etc. Lots of life has that form. But just tying this back into movement for a moment, one thing I want to cover before we go is people's fear of moving for risk of aggravating injury and how you feel about that as a fear. It's totally normal. Everybody who's had an injury experiences it. And so that's why graded exposure is such an important thing to do. And it can be teeny tiny movements of whatever the injured bodily part is. It could be moving a different body part. And it's all about kind of like restoring confidence in moving. It's partly about knowing intellectually that if you move in a particular way on an injured joint, it's unlikely that you're gonna be doing like extra damage, even though it feels like you are, it kind of doesn't really work that way. But you know, pain is not always indicative of damage. It's just sensitivity. Why take the risk? Why take the risk? Because through moving, you're helping your body, your joints, your brain to understand that moving is actually okay and is actually useful and is actually safe. And that feeling of safety through moving then promotes more. So the more afraid you are to move, and there's like a kind of vicious circle, pain, fear, pain. So we have the pain. And then we have the fear because of the pain. So we're afraid that we're going to hurt ourselves more or do more damage. And the fear actually creates more pain. Yeah, so that's quite a good answer, right? Like the point there is, well, you think you're not aggravating it by not moving. Bad luck. You actually end up effectively seizing up. Basically, yeah. And creating a prolonged pain experience and a prolonged injury experience. So we now know that like early exposure to movement after an injury actually helps injuries recover obviously we have to be a little bit careful but for example like on a sprained ankle if you start doing gentle stuff like the next day that can actually help speed up the recovery rather than just sitting and waiting for six weeks because of the fear and the pain and the fear pain fear pain fear thing (laughs) that's why graded exposure and early movement is a really useful way to help people feel more confident in moving, help their brain subconsciously on a more kind of subconscious level to perceive that the movement isn't so scary and dangerous. And gradually it helps to increase the movement repertoire over time. Okay, interesting. So actually you end up diversifying the amount of movement you can do just as long as you're happy to kind of poke your head over the parapet. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so in the beginning, we just look at a picture of a spider, as I said earlier. And then eventually, you know, it could be a different kind of spider. It could be a red back, something or other that I think they have in Australia. I don't know. Yeah. Different kinds of spiders and doing different things. Different kinds of spiders and doing different things. I think that is a brilliant place to finish up. Thank you, everyone, as always, for listening to this week's episode of Get to Move On with Amy Slevin. 
I hope that was an informative discussion about fear. I've certainly learned something. And as always, we'll see you next week. Bye. That was Get to Move On with Amy Slevin. If you enjoyed that, we'll be back next week with a slightly different topic. And if you didn't enjoy that, we'll be back next week with a slightly different topic. Thanks for listening.